Hello everyone, this is Maz. If you're hearing this message, it means you're not part of the Voices of War subscriber community and will only hear the first half of the episode. If that's enough, then I'm thrilled. However, if you're looking to dive deeper into the complexities of war, please consider subscribing to our private feed by using the link at the top of the show notes. By doing so, you'll gain access to all of our episodes, the ability to ask follow-up questions, and we'll become part of an exclusive community that makes this show possible. I hope you'll make the decision to join us today. People can experience moral injury in one of three ways. They can experience it through acts of commission, so things that they or other people did that they shouldn't have done, acts of omission where they they haven't acted, they haven't done things that they ought to have done, or acts of betrayal where you feel let down by people who should have been looking out for you. As your mental health begins to degrade, it doesn't just stop you enjoying life, it doesn't just stop you functioning well, it doesn't just stop you eating or sleeping, it also affects the way that you view what is morally right and morally wrong. Each time that I do things right and hand them over, they come back and they kill more of my people. What am I meant to do? You you think about what is the right thing to do at that time? And unfortunately, in this particular case, and it's all documented, it happened enough times that one of the US troops took these two people down by the riverside and they shot them, which of course is completely wrong. And they got found guilty of murder and they got sent to a military prison for committing war crimes, you know, which is understandable. But the question you ask yourself is, what would you do? You know, much as our newspapers and some of our outspoken members of society say, well, you know, this is completely wrong and, you know, soldiers should never act like that. It's very hard for them to get inside the mind and the, the environment of what it's really like to operate in a war zone. My guest today is Dr. Neil Greenberg, who is a clinical and academic psychiatrist based at King's College London. Neil has served in the United Kingdom Armed Forces for more than 23 years and has deployed as a psychiatrist and researcher to a number of hostile environments, including Afghanistan and Iraq. During his time with the Royal Marines, he also achieved the Arctic Warfare Qualification and completed the All Arms Commando course, earning him the coveted Green Beret. Neil has published more than 120 scientific papers and book chapters and has presented to national and international audiences on matters concerning the psychological health of the UK Armed Forces, organisational management of traumatic stress and occupational mental health. Neil has also been at the forefront of developing peer-led traumatic stress support packages including Trauma Risk Management, or TRIM, which was initially used by the Royal Marines but has since been taken up by other organisations including the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, media organisations numerous GK police forces, and the London Ambulance Service. Neil joined me today to discuss the increasingly important subject of mental health among our military and veteran communities. Neil, thank you very much for joining me on The Voices of War. Thanks very much for having me on. So before we get to the complex topic of uh, mental health, uh, it might be useful to get a sense of your own background and how you found yourself doing this work. Uh, So firstly, what motivated your study uh, of psychiatry? Uh, And secondly, how did you end up uh, in the Royal Marines and qualifying as a Green Beret. So uh, I went to medical school in Southampton because uh, I was quite interested in biology mm. and all that kind of stuff about how you care for people and the like. So I did that when I was 18. Um, 
very quickly at university, you got to kind of realize that it's a, a long haul being a doctor and the training to sort of mm. become a specialist. Um, and one of my friend's brothers was in the Navy. And okay. so I just spoke to him uh, about that. I said, hey, did you know the Navy had doctors? And he said he was going out to see someone in London about joining himself. And I went, oh, that sounds good. Can I come? And it was sort of a kind of a chance chat like that. So I, I, I went up and I, I ended up joining the Navy. And um, when you're in the Navy, you have to do three years uh, doing what's called general service. So you're basically like a general practitioner, family doctor. And I did uh, a year on a ship. I did about eight months on a nuclear submarine. And then I did a year and a half with the Royal Marines. And by that time, I had got interested in psychiatry, although I was doing general medicine. Is that because of the sub? <laughs> time on the sub? <laughs> well, I have to say, time on the sub certainly does create some uh, interesting psychological environments, for sure. Um, but but what I wanted to do is I wanted to try and see the whole sort of field of what the Navy had to, had, had to offer. And... Um, um, so I, I'm I'm not a Royal Marines commando. I'm a Royal Navy mm. commando, or at least I was when I was in the in the military. And so when you work with the Royal Marines, it, they really want you to do the commando course so that you can wear the green beret and you're just like them. Uh, and so quite quite a lot, the majority of the um of the doctors that work with the Royal Marines are from the Navy, and uh, and most of them um, at least have a go at trying to get uh, their green beret, which is a uh, a, a long, a long, long time of trying to eat mud and climb ropes and all that kind of exciting stuff. So that's kind of what what, what sort of got me into um, sort of working with the Marines. And then when I was specialising in psychiatry, uh, working a little bit with the health service, but a lot with the military, um, I became very interested not just in mental health, but how organisations. You know, I was in mm. the military. How organisations uh, manage mental health. And um, actually, one of the formative bits of my psychiatry training it was actually doing child psychiatry okay. uh, and actually i know it sounds like that's completely relevant when it comes to the military it's really relevant because child psychiatry is all about looking at the system rather than the individual so if you've got a child who's you know got a mental you have to look at the family and the school and the environment around them because it's pretty rare that it's just the child who's got the problem it's often part of the system mm. and it's exactly the same in the military if you've got a ship and you've got three people from the same department who seems to develop, you know, a mental health disorder, it may well be that something's going on in that department. And the solution isn't to provide necessarily treatment for those three people. It's to try and work out what's wrong in the department. And maybe there's a senior person there who's causing problems and you have to address that problem before you can get the, uh, the individual sailors better. So thinking about things at a systems level uh, it has, has been one of the sort of driving forces of, of, of my my clinical work, but also very much my academic work. Uh, and when I was in the military, I, I was the psychiatrist who was interested in academia. So I ended up, as well as seeing patients, getting into sort of running the military mental health research program. And that's that's where I be became a professor. That is uh, fascinating on so many levels. Uh, f I mean, firstly, I feel like we've just kind of brushed over the fact that um, you've earned a Green Beret, uh, which... I feel like we need to just double click on and make sure everybody understands that that's not a matter of just an attending a course, uh, that it's uh, firstly highly arduous, but also very selective. And uh, the pass rate is, uh, well, let's just call it what it is, not very high, right? That, that certainly is true. So, so certainly all the, um, all the Royal Marines, apart from the band service in the UK, all of them are commando trained, so they have to be. And if you work with the Marines, then you are strongly encouraged to attend the commando course. 
So it's uh, 10 weeks long. Um, it involves um, you know, back to basics, uh, military type skills, um, and then lots of specific what are called commando tests. You know, so there's rope climbs and there's marches and there's weight carries and speed exercises and assault courses and all that kind of stuff that you would imagine. Um, and, and yes, it's tough. Um, um, and it's very much trying to not necessarily sort of break you, but to sort of get mm. you to a point where you realize that even when the going's tough, you can keep going. Um, and what it tries to instill in you is the sense that you're part of this other great group of people who, you know, who, which the Marines are, um, wh which can go anywhere and, and, and get on with doing difficult tasks. And actually, you know, there's a nice story, I think, about the difference mm. between sort of Marines and Navy, because the Marines are part of the Navy, but they are certainly very separate. So when um, when I was a junior doctor working with the Marines, uh, we would go and do exercises. You would go to places and there would often be lots of tents. And so you would chuck all the tents out on the ground and someone's got to put the tents up. And so if you had a bunch of Marines and a bunch of regular Navy medics, what would happen is the Navy medics would say, oh, I'll just going to go and get a cup of coffee or I'm just going to go and do something and I'll come back. And all the Marines would go, right, come on, lads, let's get this up. So the Navy guys mm, would tend to drift mm. off and the Marines would just crack off. They just get things done. Um, and, and that kind of can-do mm. attitude uh, is, is something that the, uh, the commander course also installs in you. You know, it, it is hard. It's difficult to pass and, it, you know, it hurts at times. Um, but at the end of it, you think, gosh, if I can do that, then, you know, I can do most things. And, and I think that's a very useful, mm. um, you know, uh, characteristic to sort of end up with as, as, as part of getting that Green Beret. No, absolutely. But I suppose it also brought you inside the tent in more ways than one. So not only were you now fully qualified, uh, but you really understood what it takes to be a, uh, a Royal Marine uh, commando, uh, which I guess, if I'm guessing correctly, opened the door uh, uh, into, I guess, treating some of these guys and understanding their lived experience. Yeah, well, it certainly does make you, you know, m more part of the team and more acceptable. Um that 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 said, although you you definitely get a better understanding of what's going on, and 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 you know you are part of that team. To to be fair, in the military generally, we have you know our doctors and nurses and psychologists and all those sorts of professionals. But you treat whoever comes through your door. Um, I mm. think what it certainly did do when I when I came to look about how do you change the system, how do you make the system more resilient, and you you mentioned in my bio about trim mm. about this peer support package. When it came to to getting that to work within the Marines, then yes, absolutely. You know, they they were willing to listen to me perhaps a little more than they might uh, uh, listen to someone who had a blue beret, which is you know what what, what you have the before you get your green one. Absolutely. Mm. No, I uh, well as a, as a, as somebody who wears a blue beret, I can uh, certainly uh, empathise <laughs> with with, uh, with that view and uh, how how the colour of the beret might uh, uh, divide people or, or close or open doors. Uh, okay, so maybe let's uh, let's now start diving into, I guess, some of the issues we're going to talk about. Now, so in your experience or extensive experience of uh, of living and breathing the military, uh, studying as well as treating uh, uh, mental health issues in the military and beyond, what are some of the most common mental health issues that military personnel face, either during or after deployments to war zones? Well, I think one of the things to start off by saying here is that uh, clearly the military's job is to deploy to challenging environments around the world and get on with difficult tasks. So, you know, be that war or be that humanitarian relief or be that, um, you know, providing security, whatever they do. Um, and you would therefore imagine 
that the biggest stresses that most military personnel face are you know seeing people die seeing um you know locals who are who are who are injured or in very difficult circumstances so you would imagine that trauma was the biggest occupational risk that military personnel face um but you'd be wrong <laughs> um and so even when mm. i was going out yeah. to afghanistan and iraq and uh, seeing people out there for clinical purposes as well as for research the most common reason that people are in a war zone come and seek psychiatric care is not my buddy died in my arms. It's my boss isn't treating me fairly. My wife doesn't love me. You know, I never liked myself and, uh, and my friends treat me. Interesting. It's the same old stuff that you would find if you go to the office block in downtown Melbourne, you know, and, and try to find out what was going on there with their mental health. So we mustn't forget that day-to-day stressors have a really big impact both at home and also whilst you're deployed. And actually, when you're deployed, mm-hmm. you often uh, worry more about you know your family and your wife and relationships back at home because, of course, you can't do anything about it. You're stuck in this this war zone. So, to trauma is really important. It is, but we mustn't lose sight of the fact that it's not even the most common reason that people become unwell. So, in the military, the most common disorders that we see amongst military personnel are what are called adjustment disorders. And these are mental health difficulties that arise as the result of a single or a set of stressors which impact upon someone's mental health. So it might be relationship breakdown, it might be failing exams, it might not be getting promoted, it might be financial difficulties, it might be uh, coping with uh, the relationship between you and your supervisor who you think is treating you unfairly. Those sort of significant stresses that cause most of us to feel some difficulty to some distress, but in some people that it can push them over uh, over the sort of top and, and it can make them become unwell. And the thing about adjustment disorders is, yes, you can treat it using psychological approaches, very occasionally medication, but also you need to manage the stressor. So if it's about relationship mm. difficulties, yes, once, you know, if their partner's gone, you can help them get over it. But when their partner's you know, there and coming back and sending messages and they're not sending messages, and no amount of treatment is going to make that better. You have to attend to the stress. Um, and so that's what happens most commonly uh, to military personnel. And all our military mental health data shows that that's the most common reason that people present. But of course, military personnel also do develop trauma-related problems like post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, depression, alcohol misuse, um, and, and you know, occasionally other disorders like obsessive compulsive disorder. And really, really occasionally they have going psychotic problems you know where they lose contact with reality and you know madness by by um by by mm-hmm. terminology um but 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 really it's 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 the combination of stresses both from work deployment and home life um that have the biggest impact upon um troops mental health okay so m- maybe we can just delve a little bit into the difference between those different disorders um so what is the difference between ptsd say and adjustment disorders anxiety depression etc Yes. So, um, as I say, an adjustment disorder is a a disorder that comes on after a particular stressor or series of stressors. Now, if that stressor is traumatic, let's say it is a bomb blast, it's a a shooting incident, it's coming across a dead body, then then that that stressor, if it's a traumatic stressor, and by traumatic, what we mean in terms of definitions is something that is real or threatened um, death, serious injury or sexual violence. That's what that's mm. what makes something a trauma. Um, so if you come across a trauma, then if it ends up causing um, sufficient symptoms, you then meet the diagnostic 
criteria, you get a diagnosis of PTSD. So to get PTSD depends on which textbook you use, but you generally have to have some intrusion symptoms. So you can't stop thinking about it. You might have nightmares. You might have things like flashbacks, which is where it, it, you feel as if it is happening again. So you can see, smell, feel the, the, the mm. event happening again. You also have avoidance. So you don't want to talk about it. You don't want to go near anything that reminds you of it because it makes you very distressed. And you also have um, arousal symptoms. So you can't sleep, you're on edge, you're jumpy, you're constantly looking for threats. And it depends on which textbook you used as to how you definitely make the the, uh, the diagnosis. But, but those are the symptoms of PTSD. And if you don't quite meet that, so you've got some of those symptoms, but not enough of it, and it's still impairing your life so it's still causing problems to your life then you might have an adjustment disorder and and the real difference the real important bit because it sounds a bit kind of well, well so what is that the thing is with an adjustment mm-hmm. disorder it goes back to can you manage the stressor because if you can if someone's been involved in a traumatic event um and that's finished there was a bomb blast for instance or there was shooting that's over and done with the question is are they recovering so with adjustment disorders, you would expect recovery would occur in up to six months. So it would improve by itself over time. You might need someone to help on the way, but you're not going to necessarily have to treat it. If you've got PTSD, the chances are that that's likely to be persistent. So you're likely to need treatment. So there is a there is a point to trying to make a diagnosis um, as well. Things like depression. Depression can come on after trauma, but it can also come on you know, if you've got a predisposition to it um, and, and there's other things going on in your life. And of course, the military does tend to recruit. I mean, I'm sure it's the same in Australia as it is in the UK, you know, from certain areas of society where where people often do have a lot of childhood adversity. So people come into the military to escape, you know, a terrible life or because they want to do something better. Yeah. So people who join the military often have a lot of childhood adversity in the in the first place, which is why they they kind of joined up. Mm. And what that means is when they come into the military, they're often their coping skills are perhaps not as well developed as they as they should be, which means that relatively smaller stressors can make them become unwell mm. psychologically, unwell mm. uh, more easily. Um, and and so that that's important to note yeah. as well. What's fascinating though about the military and what is very interesting is all the data we have suggests that actually the longer you serve, the more likely you are actually to be psychologically well mm-hmm. so you would imagine that actually the longer you serve the more likely you are to be kind of affected yeah. you know you've gone on more deployments yeah. more stress you would think that they they would be more at risk but in fact it's the other way around and actually if you get over the first four six eight ten years and you've deployed a couple of times there is what's often called the healthy worker effect or in the military it's called the healthy warrior effect mm-hmm. which basically means that if you've coped with that and you haven't left and you haven't developed a medical problem, actually, that means that you probably are pretty resilient. Hmm. Now, again, this is not about absolutes. Hmm. You know, it's not saying that everybody who serves for seven years is going to yeah. be psychologically resilient yeah. forever. But what it does mean is that the people who are the most vulnerable are actually the people in the early part of their career. That is so interesting and, and rather counterintuitive, I guess, as you as you rightly pointed out. Um, is there anything that we can kind of uh, point at uh, as to what's uh, might determine the likelihood of one particular disorder over another, you know whether it's somebody's more susceptible to say PTSD or or adjustment disorders or depression or anxiety. I know you alluded to the fact that uh, you know their childhood uh, might might have a role to play, uh, but are there any other factors that uh, that are out there, and to what extent are we actually accounting for these? 
Yeah. So if we if we just take PTSD as an example, because mm-hmm. there's been lots of research on on that in particular. So you can split risk factors into three categories. You can say what was the person like before they experienced the trauma. You can you then got the trauma itself. How unpleasant was it? And then you've got what happens after the mm-hmm. trauma. And so what we know is that for any person who goes through a traumatic event, actually, it, it the most influential risk factors are what happens afterwards. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you've got a bad childhood, you've got a previous history of mental health problems, you've got poor education, you've got lots of childhood adversity, you've got family history of mental health problems, you've got all these risks that actually make you seemingly quite vulnerable. And you go through a really nasty trauma, mm. you know, three of your team get get killed and, and you see some horrible stuff whilst you're deployed. Mm. But actually, you get fantastic support afterwards so you have really good supervisors really good colleagues they manage your stress well they look out for you they support you they talk to you actually your chance of developing ptsd is pretty low Mm. so we know that actually rather than worry too much about you know what people were like beforehand or even how bad the trauma is what we need to do instead is to manage that post-trauma exposure and make it as supportive as possible because that dramatically reduces the risk that people will become unwell right uh, and that's really important for the military because one of the things that's often used, and I, I know it is in, 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 in Australia, is, is people talk about psychological health screening. Mm-hmm. And what they kind of say is, well, what we should do is to make sure that we, we don't take people into the military who are very vulnerable because if we do, they're going to become unwell. Well, of course, again, that's a bit, that would be a bit mm-hmm. unfortunate because many of the people who want to join the military actually are quite vulnerable. Yeah. That's why they want to join. <laughs> they want to get away from this bad yeah. background. Yeah. Um, and it would be nice to think that we could give them a screening test or you could give them a blood test or they could sit down with a, with a mental health professional and you could interview them to try and detect, you know, is this person really, really at high risk? But all the evidence we have, and we've done trials on this, and, and Australia has actually led on some of these trials also, although with police rather mm-hmm. than military, mm-hmm. shows that actually we are terribly bad at predicting who's going to develop mental health problems or not. Okay. Um, and the reason, the reason we're terribly bad is because it's not really dependent on what you were like beforehand. It goes back to what I said earlier. The most important thing is how you were treated afterwards. I'll, I'll give you a quick example, actually, from police, yes. because it's, it's a story which, which resonates. So there was this police officer that I dealt with many years ago who um, was an undercover cop. He, uh, he was working with some colleagues and uh, they were trying to arrest a team of uh, people who were drug dealers. Uh, this particular day, the cop gets, um, he's watching what's going on. He sees a drug deal happening. He goes down to arrest the drug dealer. The drug dealer gets into a fight with him. He stabs him. Unfortunately, the the police officer falls to the ground. He thinks he's going to die, um, uh, but he doesn't die. His colleagues come and they rescue him. He goes to hospital. He gets his arm put in a sling. And six weeks later, he's back at work with his arm. You know, everyone says, oh, great to see you mm. back. You know, I hope you're okay. Anything we can do to help, let us know. So he says, actually, I want to put a claim in. I want to put a claim in. I want some money because actually I was wearing plain clothes and actually my clothes, in, as well as me getting stabbed, you know, my, my, my clothes are ruined, you know, mm. by this. And his boss, his boss says, well, we're not going to pay you for that because that's not the way that we work in the police, you know. And <laughs> it takes him six weeks. He has to get the police federation, like the union involved. He has to go to the deputy chief constable. He has to go through a whole challenging difficult time just to get paid for the clothes that he was wearing when he got that's stabbed crazy. that were ruined now that's not supportive uh, it wasn't helpful uh and i'm not saying that he developed ptsd because he didn't get the money for mm. his clothes 
But that whole environment where everyone says, can we help? And then when you ask for help, they go, actually, we're not interested, mate. You know, go and sort <laughs> yourself out. And he ended up getting PTSD and he ended up getting medically retired from the police. And and really, the, the his bosses didn't stack the cards in their favor. Yeah. Um, that was not good support. Yeah. Um, and, and the same goes, you know, from a military point of view is what we need is when troops do get exposed to traumatic events, which of course is their job, then what you need to do afterwards is to make sure that you provide them with the right and proper support because if you do that you will substantially decrease the uh, risk that they develop a mental health problem that is so interesting and that uh, then takes me to the next point or next question i have is uh, i know we're still wrestling over a definition exactly but what is then on your in your view what is then moral injury because what it strikes me as though you're talking about is a sense of loss of trust or loss of uh, respect or loss of, um, well, I guess trust is the best word, uh, for one's chain of command, one's superiors, one's system, one's institution, uh, which in itself causes kind of perhaps a moral injury or or does moral injury fit into there somewhere? Yeah, so there's a, the, as, you, as you hinted at, there's a big debate about moral injury and PTSD. Are they the same thing? Should they be different? Should moral injury be a diagnosis? It, it's not a diagnosis. You won't find it in diagnostic mm. textbooks. Mm. But what it describes are these strong uh, negative emotions that people experience when their moral code um, has been violated. And often they will experience guilt, shame, anger or disgust. Mm. And people can experience moral injury in one of three ways. Um, They can experience it through acts of commission. So things that they or other people did that they shouldn't have done. Acts of omission where they they haven't acted, they haven't done things that they ought to have done uh, and, and they feel bad about it. Or acts of betrayal, where you feel let down by people who should have been looking out for you, colleagues, seniors, family, you know, society, whatever you feel. And um, I think there is a difference between moral injury and PTSD in the sense that with PTSD, the loss that you experience there is often the loss of safety. You know, the world is no longer safe. I can't um, trust what's going to go on because bad things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, some, and someone's going to get injured or killed. Whereas with moral injury, the the loss is 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 as you suggest is the loss of trust. Is is that I I can't trust myself. I can't trust others. So there are lots of similarities. The challenge with moral injury at the moment is we don't have a threshold criteria. Mm. So I mentioned mm. by that what what I mean is I mentioned earlier on that for trauma for P, to develop PTSD. We know what a traumatic event is. It has to be real or threatened, death, serious injury, or sexual mm. violence. So mm. when your boss at work doesn't treat you properly and calls you silly names and, and doesn't promote you on time, you can't develop PTSD from that. You can be upset, you can become unwell, but you can't develop PTSD because it's not real or threatened, death, serious injury, or sexual violence. Mm. So we know that. Mm, mm, mm. With, moral, with moral injury, mm. we don't have a threshold. You know, so if you go down to the local supermarket and someone takes the last tin of beans and you're really upset by that, you know, potentially you could become morally injured. But I mean, that that makes no sense. Mm. You know, it doesn't make any sense compared to some of the horrible things that 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 go on in the world. And so, moral injury at the moment is 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 not. It's an important concept. We need to do more with it, and it, it's it's it, it's useful because if we understand more about it, we can also understand more about how to improve people's situation but at the moment without that threshold um sort of definition within it it it, it is floundering a little bit mm, okay that, that's again really interesting it's come up a number of times on the podcast in previous discussions 
as as an interesting concept for for the very reasons you've described that it's it's there somewhere we just can't touch it we can't clearly define it and we don't have diagnostic uh, characteristics that would say okay this person meets the threshold and therefore this is a recognized condition of some form or another uh, but where it's come up most uh, at least for me in discussions on the podcast and elsewhere is that perhaps there's a widespread disappointment, and we've seen this as a result of uh, Afghanistan, the withdrawal in Afghanistan and the abysmal failure uh, or the, the loss of that war, full stop, uh, where you know a lot of, uh, lot of uh, uh, veterans who've been to Afghanistan have given a lot uh, and have felt almost betrayed by the governments, whether this be the American, you know, Australian, uh, UK government, any of the contributing nations' governments, uh, I suspect there will be a number of uh, veterans in there who have had, uh, who have felt uh, a sense of betrayal for leaving their, uh, I guess, partners, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, uh, you know, leaving, letting them over, leaving them over to their to their own fates, I guess, after twenty years of war. Uh, and perhaps another example is the Iraq War, which is, and I think, most notably been shown as an illegal war by, I guess, the Chilcot Inquiry in the UK, uh, which again has uh, put, perhaps, triggered feelings of guilt uh, or, or started questioning the justness of the cause of the war uh, and our leaders' decisions to send us to war. And I wonder whether you've got any data, research, anecdotes uh, about how this kind of justness of a particular conflict uh, or the way we leave a conflict, how that might impact troops who've been involved. Yeah, well, I'm, I, I, th I think you're absolutely right. There's no doubt in the UK, I've seen plenty of clinical situations of patients related to this but we've also done research related to it um that 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 the 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 withdrawal from afghanistan has has definitely been one of the the, the sort of hallmarks of, of something that's gone terribly wrong you know it, it is a morally injurious event the, the the heart of moral injury though is about the lack of meaning you know what is you can't make sense of it it doesn't make any sense mm. um and what we know is that if you can help um, individuals develop what we call a meaningful narrative that is a a story an understanding that that doesn't mean that their efforts were futile and that it was a waste of time if you can help develop that meaningful narrative then um, that can be useful in terms of them improving and getting better the challenge of course is that from a governmental point of view um, that that the, the story about why we went into Afghanistan and what we were trying to achieve you know, it's hellishly complex. Mm -hmm. You know, that there there are inquiries that are ongoing, and you know you can use a scalpel blade and make every single decision uh, come under the spotlight and try and decide whether you were right or wrong at that time. But of course, you're then sort of second guessing and using hindsight to try and work out what would have happened if you made a different decision. Mm. So these and these things are are hellishly morally ambiguous, and yes, there are always going to be mistakes. What's important, though, is for every soldier who, or sailor or airman who gets affected by it is, of course, they can't individually um, decide whether they're going to go to war or not. You know, they get told to go to war. It's their job. That is that is what they do. And the thing that you can try and make sense of is about the camaraderie. Is um, And this goes right back to research done, actually, after the uh, Second World War by Shields and Yanovich. It was a classic, classic uh, piece of research. So the the Americans were really trying to understand why the German army carried on fighting, even when it was very clear that Adolf Hitler was a, a you know, a, a, a difficult and unpleasant individual <laughs> with some very strange ideas. Um, and so they were interviewing 
uh, Wehrmacht, you know, the German mm. military after the Second World War, to try and understand why they kept fighting for this person who was clearly not 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 a nice individual. And they said to the, the there's a classic kind of quote from this German Wehrmacht sergeant saying, you know, so so why were you fighting for Hitler? And the the sergeant laughed at the interview, saying, we weren't fighting for Hitler, we were fighting for each other. Mm. Um, that the the reason that you go to war and you do well isn't for this greater goal and um, strategic objectives. Yes, the generals and the air marshals and the admirals and the politicians think of strategic objectives. But when you're a Marine or a soldier and you're on the ground and you know, you're coming into contact, you're doing your best for the guys and girls around you. Um, and that's the thing that you can focus on in creating meaning. However rubbish the whole political stuff is, which is beyond your control, what is important is the things that you did at the time were to work well as a team. You did the best you could in what were challenging circumstances. And, you know, you know, in the end, it, it didn't work out the way that we wanted it to. Mm. I mean, team mm. use a sort of contemporary kind of view on that. I mean, I, I know nothing about the the what goes through the mind of Russian soldiers mm. at mm. the moment. But you mm -hmm. can imagine that, that, that many of them aren't very happy to get slaughtered by the thousands fighting on a foreign territory that... They used to think they're friends, mm. but at the same time, they can't change that political piece themselves. What they can do is to look out for each other. Mm. So I think when mm. they come to try and create meaning, to try and create this meaningful narrative as a as a, someone who's a, either in the military or a veteran, I think if you can help people focus on what you did and what it was about for the team and the people around you when you're out there, that's a much healthier way of looking rather than trying to look at the you know the strategic political outcomes which are beyond any of our individuals control that's really interesting i mean because in a way it really focuses it on the i guess tactical environment and what you can shape and influence but in a way it also perhaps well, at least in my view might abdicate uh responsibility of conduct of war also to uh, those who have sent us to war uh, what I what I mean by that is, you know, if if the if we've been sent to an unjust war, uh, I wonder whether we can ever, regardless of how much we focus on the camaraderie, walk away from that war or fight that or feel like we fought that war justly. So to use the Russian example, I wonder whether ten years, fifteen years from now, those currently fighting that war on the Russian side uh, can ever walk away and um, and really reflect on uh, having fought justly a war that is you know, so obviously unjust. And I wonder what impact that has on one's psychological state or, or well-being. Well, well, I mean, clearly it's not going to have a good psychological mm. impact. But at the same time, for an individual soldier, whatever, you know, junior rank you might be, you can't decide which, which orders you're going to obey and which orders you're not going to mm. obey. I mean, where you go against the Geneva Convention, okay, that's fine. That's a bigger set of laws. Uh, which which are over. Well, that's where I was going to. That's where I actually wanted to get to. So that's a really. Yeah, please continue because that's where I wanted to get to. Because because then to me there's a there's some a further question there. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. So the law of armed conflict, which you know comes out of the Geneva Convention, says there are certain things that you can and cannot do within the rules of engagement. Yeah. So you can't shoot someone because you're angry and you don't like them and you think they might have done something. You have to have a you know a valid reason for using lethal force. If you think someone's going to come and shoot you and your colleagues and cause serious injury or death, then you have a valid reason to do what you're going to do. That's very much at a tactical level, and and, and that's where the law of armed conflict for an individual soldier or mm. marine works. Mm. Um, but if you had, if you were asking all 
military personnel to question every single order that was ever put down. So I want you to go over there. Well, actually, boss, I don't really think so. I think I should be going mm. over there. The whole thing would mm. fall apart. Yeah. And when I was in the Navy, when you're on a ship and you're at sea and the sea is rough and there are big waves coming over the ship, the whole ship could sink mm. unless everyone does what mm. they need to do. Mm. So you know, mm. in, the, in the olden times, the, the captain and the senior officers would be shouting orders telling people what to do. You, you don't need people questioning mm. those orders because if you question the orders, the whole shit goes down. It all falls apart. Mm. Mm. What, as, long as, the, as long as, therefore, what you're doing is within the law of armed conflict, you, you have to get on and do what, what, what you're told to do. Other, otherwise, the, the, the system doesn't work. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I, can, I totally see that. So what is it then that uh, turns otherwise healthy, you know, whatever we define as average healthy, you know, uh, uh, um, with, a, with a, a well-adjusted moral compass, uh, you know, the average person, what takes that person from falling to that bracket uh, to stepping outside of it and, you know, committing war crimes or, or transgressing against the, say, Geneva Convention uh, or laws of armed conflict? Well, there is reasonably good evidence, and actually um, the, the best of this in a sort of more modern time comes from a, a US um, study, which was called the MHAT, the Mental Health Advisory Team. Um, and so what the MHAT did uh, was a group of mental health professionals who would go out these in, to visit US forces who were deployed uh, in Iraq or later also to Afghanistan and to measure their mental health whilst they were deployed. Mm -hmm. And the original MHATs were all about looking at troop well-being. But as time went on, the MHATs developed and they started adding in additional questions uh, into the surveys. And the surveys were um, were done in a way that it wasn't screening. So whatever an individual soldier answered on the survey, that no one came to find them. It was about looking at the whole force mm. uh, mental health rather than trying to find individual cases. And, and certainly in the UK, we, we've done the same things. We, we developed something called the Operational Mental Health Needs Evaluation, the, the same sort of process. But in one of the MHATs, I think it was MHAT 4, they also, as well as asking about mental health and leadership and supervision, they also asked about your attitudes towards morally uh, wrong acts. Mm. You know, would you, would you turn a blind eye if you saw a mm. colleague, you know, do something that was morally wrong? Would it bother you? And what they found very clearly was the people who had worse mental health were much more likely to say, yeah, I'll turn a blind eye. I wouldn't care. And so actually what we know from that and also from other work that's done alongside it, um, is that actually as your mental health begins to degrade, it doesn't just stop you enjoying life. It doesn't just stop you functioning well. It doesn't just stop you uh, eating or sleeping. It also affects the way that you view uh, what is morally right and morally mm. wrong. Um, and, and, and therefore, what we know is people who have mental health problems, and, and to be fair, a lot of troops when they're deployed are going to be highly distressed, even if they haven't got a mental health problem that actually that can affect the way that you interpret what is morally right and wrong. And we then come back to, well, how do you counter that? What do you do about it? And of course, is the most important thing there is that you maintain as good a mental health status as you can. And mostly that's not about psychiatrists, mental health professionals. It's nothing to do mm. with us. It's about leadership. Mm. It's about the quality of the person who is your day-to-day -day supervisor. Mm. Um, and there were some very nice examples, um, uh, certainly um, from from Iraq, of, of British um, senior officers talking to their troops, you know, at, at sort of battalion level, telling them that actually, yes, we're going to war. Yes, we will be using lethal force, but we will be doing it in the right way. We will be doing it and sticking to within the law because that's who we are. We have to be 
better than the rest and we have to do the right thing. Mm. And ultimately, actually, mm. the military is not about getting a bunch of, um, you know, wanting to kill psychopaths and letting them loose mm. on an enemy. Mm. It's about getting professionals who have been trained to operate in a way that's not just likely to achieve an objective, but to do it in a in a legally safe way. And and very much so, if you just let people go, then, then they will um, be more likely to be uh, sort of do things that are morally wrong. And very much this, this is a facet of leadership at, at all levels, I have to say. Okay, that's a, that's a really important insight. And I guess it really places the emphasis on, uh, on those in command uh, on the ground. But this also brings me to the question about war itself. To what extent does war itself and, and the nature of war, the character of war, contribute to this moral degradation we're talking about? And is it possible, in fact, to go to war without, over time, becoming desensitized to the effects of war, so to, to death, to killing, uh, to the sound of uh, uh, explosions, to being shot at, etc., etc.? Uh, because there's a protective element, of course, that comes with that. So is it possible to remain, uh, uh, to, to resist, I guess, the deg degradation that occurs? Well, at an individual level, it may or may not be, depending on what your moral compass was like before you before you started and depending on how your mental health um, is affected by what you experience. Mm. But, um, but at a team level, absolutely it is. I mean, I, I can't believe that in any Iraq or Afghanistan situation that if you spoke to the senior officers in charge about what they wanted their troops to do, I, I, I really hope that those senior officers, and I would expect, we're saying we want them to operate within the rule of the mm. law and achieve whatever operational objectives we mm. have set them. And so if that starts at the top, as it filters down, that message needs to get put through to everybody at all levels. Mm. And of course, the most important place it has to land is with the corporals. Mm. Mm -hmm. It's with the most junior leaders you know, who are leading a corporal, you know, in a mm. military sense, might lead um, um, sort of eight mm. people. And those eight people will go out and to do whatever task the corporal, if they say, right, guys, we're going to do whatever we need to do. Let's just go and kill those people over there. Don't don't worry about you know, what, the, what the law says. Let's just get it done. Mm. That's going to have a very different approach to someone who says, right, you know, this is going to be tough. We need to do it this way. And this is why. And they explain it um, and, and to stay within the law. Mm. And there, there is this mm. concept of what's called the psychologically good war and the psychologically bad war. And the psychologically good war, as an example, uh, from a UK perspective anyway, was the Falklands War. Mm -hmm. So the Falklands War, you know, it was a British dependency that wanted to be British. The Argentinians invaded it. We sent, there was public support for it. We went down, we marched across. There were some deaths. You know, in general senses, people played within the, the game fairly. They played within the rule of law, you know, the Argentinians and the, and the, and the British troops. Um, so, you know, so if people got killed, you know, that was obviously really unfortunate, but that's what happens in war. And, you know, at the end of the day, the good news for the British troops is that they ended up being victorious. You know, that, that is a psychologically good war. You, you stay within the rules and do things right. You use your training and you win. The, the psychologically bad war, you know, you can only go to look at um, the, uh, the sort of things like Vietnam where, and actually Afghanistan's another mm -hmm. great example where, where it becomes ambiguous. Every tactical objective you take makes almost no difference to the strategic mm -hmm. objective. Uh, you, the enemy are not playing by the rules, they're doing horrendous things, they're, you know, they're committing atrocities, and therefore it's much harder for you to stay within your rules when the, the enemy are not playing by the rules as well. Um, 
and you know, and that leads to a, a more likely sort of impact on, on one's moral compass. Mm. Um, and again, in those situations, it's even more important that leadership is is strong and repetitive. If you'd like to hear the rest of this episode and gain access to all of the episodes of The Voices of War, simply become a subscriber using the link in the show notes. As you know, I will not feature any ads on the show, which is made possible solely through the support of our subscribers. If you find value in the content, you can become one now.